0: Good afternoon
1: everyone and welcome to the DC Kin Care Alliance podcast. Today is Wednesday, May 13th, 2020 on a beautiful sunny day in Washington DC and we welcome you all to the show. This is Marla Spindell, the Executive Director of DC Kin Care Alliance. I have with me my Colleague Stephanie McClellan, Deputy Director, and we also have a very special guest today, Marie Cohen. Marie, you want to say hello to everybody.
0: Hello, everybody. I'm very honored to be asked to be your first guest uh, participant. That's very that's very nice. Well,
1: thank you so much. We're really pleased that you're able to join us. Stephanie is going to tell the listeners a little bit about your background, but before we get to that, I. Just found out that Marie is engaged in an
0: orchestra of sorts. Did you want to tell us briefly about what that is? I'm in a very unusual orchestra, but very special and wonderful community-based volunteer orchestra. We are called the Washington Balalaika Society, and a Balalaika is a Russian folk instrument. So it is an orchestra of Russian folk instruments. And of course, we're sidelined right now due to the COVID crisis, and since this is like my main hobby, I'm kind of really missing it, but it's it's a fun thing to do.
2: Well,
1: that's great. We'll hope to be able to listen to that when you guys get back together and are able to perform again. Great. Stephanie, you want to tell us a little bit about Marie, and that can give
2: us the back for why she's our guest today. Sure, Marla. So our distinguished guest, Marie Cohen, is a child advocate, researcher, and policy analyst. She has a bachelor's degree in sociology from Harvard University, an MPA from Princeton, and a master's in social work from the University of Maryland. After a career as a policy analyst and researcher, Marie obtained her master's in social work in 2009. She worked as a social worker in D.C.'s child welfare system for five years and left in January 2015 with lots of concerns about how the system seems to have so many priorities that are higher than the welfare of children. She decided to start a blog to write about these problems, and that blog became the Child Welfare Monitor. In 2020, Marie started a local blog, Child Welfare Monitor D.C., She's also a member of the Child Fatality Review Committee and is in her sixth year of mentoring an 18-year-old foster youth. I wanted to mention that
1: the way I identified Marie a couple years ago was through her writing. I read an article that she wrote before she started this blog in another outlet, and I thought she was a really amazing writer, and I really – appreciated the insight and information she was providing. And shortly after I read that article, I was introduced to her at a D.C. council hearing, and I said, oh, I know
0: you. Yes. <laughs> so, you have no idea, Marla. You made my day, my week, and my month. I mean, to meet someone at a hearing who had read, it was an earlier version of my blog. I cannot even tell you how excited I was. <laughs> Well, I was
1: excited to read it and I was excited to meet you and I'm glad we were able to continue our dialogue and be able to collaborate on various issues. So the reason we asked Marie to join us today was because her recent blog post for the Child Welfare Monitor DC is called More Effort Needed to Encourage Child Abuse Reporting During Pandemic and that is something that we're concerned about as well and wanted to ask her about some of the information in that story. I want to also mention we have been looking at that both in D.C. and nationally. We were looking at some research by the World Health Organization that indicates that during natural disasters, violence increases, and also during recessions violence tends to increase. And there are various factors that are at play that result in such increases in violence. And we have that even more exacerbated today when everybody is stuck at home. Not only do we have a sort of natural disaster, a health disaster, but we also are all stuck in small places at home with no place to go or let out our energies or anxieties. And also As Marie's article mentioned, children aren't going to school. People aren't able to see or hear about what's going on with them at home. I thought it was really interesting in the World Health Organization article that they had done a review of the six-month period after Hurricane Floyd hit in North Carolina that the rate of inflicted traumatic brain injury in children under two, showed a five-fold increase in counties severely affected by the hurricane, but no increase in counties less severely affected. I thought that was a really interesting data point. Did you have any comments on the larger picture and the issues in the larger frame, not just D.C.?
0: I think that similar things are happening around the country, and I wrote about the same issue in my national blog, and it's kind of like a perfect storm because you've got the disaster, but then you have the social isolation. So the disaster would tend to increase abuse and neglect, but the social isolation means we can't see it happening. So I'll be talking about the data for D.C., but the data are very similar around the country as well. So as a social
1: worker and researcher, can you tell us why abuse or neglect could increase during natural disasters or recessions?
0: you already said a lot of them, right? People are stressed for so many reasons, right? A big part of it is they may have lost their jobs or they may be worried about their jobs, whether they lost their job or they're working at home with the kids all the time, or if they're the parents who are essential employees and do have to go to work, well, then we have the stress of being in fear every day. Plus, Who's taking care of the kids you know we don't know who they are or is no one taking care of them there's so many different things that are going on
1: yeah and i guess even access to any kind of services that might be able to help with that is right. limited now too
0: uh, right 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 and i know there are a lot of efforts to make sure everyone gets enough to eat and the dc schools are giving out food every day and giving it to the whole family thank god But even so, people are probably still worried about having enough to eat. It's a really stressful and
1: upsetting time. So Stephanie, did you want to ask Marie some questions on her article and specifically about the D.C. issues? Sure.
2: So Marie, when you wrote this article about D.C.'s issue, one of the first issues you raised was the issue about the schools being closed. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yes, certainly.
0: Well, of course, on a national basis, the data indicate that 20 or 21 percent of reports to child abuse hotlines around the country come from educational personnel, mostly teachers, but maybe school social workers. And of course, now with kids physically not going to school, the problem is that there's virtual education going on everywhere. Officially, the public schools and the charter schools all have schools. It's not like school is closed, but it's online. There was a recent article in the Washington Post talking about how many students are not in regular touch with their schools, and they talked about a survey by the Washington Teachers Union that said 57% of the teachers said that less than half of their students were participating in virtual education. And then the chancellor said that 96% of the students have engaged in some way, but that might not be logging into their class. It might be talking to a counselor or whatever. But that would include one student being in touch once in the whole two months. So we really just don't know. And to me, the biggest takeaway of that statement is you mean there are 4% of students who haven't been in touch even once. I mean, that's really scary. So virtual contact is not as good as face-to-face contact. That's obvious, right? The signs of abuse and neglect are much easier to see face-to-face. But with not even having the virtual consistent contact, these kids are really not being seen by the mandatory reporters, the people who would be calling in if they saw a problem. And it's not just the teachers because they're also probably not going for routine medical exams, and then we have neighbors and friends who aren't, relatives who aren't seeing them. So this is borne out by the data. CFSA gave me this information that between March 16th and April 18th of this year, it received 897 calls to the hotline, the child abuse hotline, and that compares to 2,356 calls last year on the same time period. So that is just a little more than a third of the calls they got before. So that's really scary. And of the calls they're getting now, about 30% are coming from school personnel. And of the calls they got a year ago in the same period, 52% come from school personnel So you can see that the number of calls overall are going down, and the number of calls from teachers are going down, and also the percent of calls that are coming from teachers are going down. So it's kind of a scary situation.
2: So it sounds like we're concerned about the kids that we're not seeing and that we're not hearing from. One data point you had mentioned in your article that I thought was very interesting was that DCPS estimates that 30% of its students lack a computer or access to the internet at home, which would make it really difficult for kids to access online learning. And I wanted to get your take on that, Marie, and your thoughts about what might be going on and ways to reach families who don't have that access to the Internet and who the teachers aren't seeing their students.
0: Let me just, though, respond and say I do think the schools deserve a lot of credit because they have been trying to get computers out to all of these children. And also, I think they have been trying to connect them with these free offers of Internet access from Comcast I don't know if I've seen information about how successful they've been and how many kids still don't have that. But I think it's more complicated than that because especially if you're talking about elementary school kids, there does need to be a lot of parent involvement in getting the kids onto the computer at the right time and getting them logged in and all that. So even if they have the computer and the Internet If there is no parent involvement, especially at the elementary school level, it's very unlikely that the child is really going to be participating very effectively in education. So I just wanted to comment about that.
2: So Marie, one thing that you had mentioned in your article was that at the same time hotline calls have decreased, the severity of the child abuse that is being reported has increased, and you referenced some data points in the Washington Post article that at the same time last year, from mid-March to Mm mid-April, there were significantly less of the children who had reports who had injuries serious enough to be hospitalized, 50% last year versus 86% this year that only 34% of children had head trauma, fractures, or injuries in multiple areas of their body among children who had child abuse reports last year. But this year, that number had jumped to 71%. And most concerning of all, that last year, 3% of children referred for child abuse passed away from that abuse. And this year, the number was 10%. Now, my understanding is those numbers are from Children's National Medical Center, so that wouldn't necessarily represent the whole of all the reports made to CFSA, but it would be a fairly significant portion of them. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the issue of both the number of reports going down at the same time the severity of the reports going up.
0: Right. The one thing I just want to stress is it's not an exact comparison because we don't know about the severity of all the hotline reports in general. So the only thing that we know about severity is this information from Children's Hospital. And I have no idea what percent of the reports of the hotline that is. But definitely the data from the hospital is very concerning. They're saying actually that they had a smaller number of children referred to Children's Medical Center with child abuse concerns. One reason for that might be this decline in hotline calls that we talked about, right? Like children aren't going to their pediatrician or they're not going to school or whatever. So they're getting a smaller number of cases, but the cases that are coming in are more severe, and that is shown by the percentages you just
2: cited. So that is very, very disturbing.
0: You know, it's very concerning.
2: With these concerns, the numbers of reports going down the possibility of the severity of the abuse that is being seen increasing. Can you talk a little bit about strategies that governments and nonprofits and other community stakeholders can put in place to try to help to identify abuse and get that resource to families and to children when they need it?
0: I wish I had a magic bullet. Child and Family Services Agency, they definitely understand that there's a problem, and they have issued new policy guidance for educators, which I guess they've worked out with D.C. public schools. It's always been if any education personnel has safety concerns, then they should call the hotline. But now they've added a category called contact concerns, which I guess they didn't define, but I guess that's when they're concerned that a child... Is just not having enough contact with the school. And so they set up a sort of confusing rubric for the youngest children and high school children. If you have contact concerns, you should still call the hotline. But for children age 5 to 13, which is elementary school age, they have a special procedure that is based on their current law about educational neglect. And the teachers have to fill out a special form and they have to document that they were trying to contact the family every day for 10 days before they could report. And I was just a little bit concerned about that, and I just think that school is ending on May 29th. Okay, so we're getting close enough now. And once the kids are out of school, I'm really worried because at least now, we have teachers who are responsible for each kid and who know that they're not seeing them or they're seeing them and something seems to be off, and that will be gone after May 29th. So what I would like to see is more of a positive push that, okay, schools, we want to hear from you, about any kid that you have not seen or heard from since schools closed. That would be like the 4% chancellors talking about. And then we want to hear from you about any other kid that you haven't heard from in the past month or two weeks. I mean, I don't know whatever they can come up with, but good idea for them to define a population of kids that we really need to get their information before the schools close, the kids that we're really worried about because of lack of contact. And maybe that would include kids that we've had concerns about in the past or we've reported to CPS in the past. It's like once we lose the schools, we really lose the chance to have anyone check on these kids. So I would like it if CFSA were more aggressively encouraging that let's hear let's hear from you about everyone you're concerned about before schools quote. So that's one thing. Another thing, they're definitely concerned, and Brenda Donald was on the Kojo Nandi show yesterday, and it was clear that she's concerned about this. She's very concerned about this. And she asked me to share... To my blog, how important it is that neighbors, family members, and essential workers should be extra vigilant and should call if they they see any concern about a child. But I feel like they could be even more aggressive about sharing this message. Like the mayor has briefings every day, and they have powerpoints on the mayor's website, and the last powerpoint is always like "stay home, be safe." Well, wouldn't it be great if one before that would at least have the, the number of the child abuse hotline and Remember, we are all responsible for our children's safety. You know, something like that that really went out to everyone. And then another thing, getting materials out to the people who actually do see kids, like the workers in grocery stores and pharmacies, food banks, getting information out to them of the signs of abuse and the phone number of the hotline and letting them know how important it is that they report. So I feel like those are some things, I have no evidence that these have been done That they're, they're effective. These are just things that I've either heard of other people doing or logical, but, you know, I can't say that's going to make a difference. I just feel like we have to try. So, Marie, I have a question. Do you understand
1: why there's the difference in the ages for contacting CFSA? I would think that this age group of 5 to 13 would be an age group that you would be concerned about not hearing from, We're not seeing for the... Right,
0: right. I've had a long conversation with various people at CFSA about it, and the first explanation I got, which I think is simply the main one, is just that they have a special law. If there's a child age 5 to 13 who has more than 10 unexcused absences, this is the group that has this special provision under the law. So that's why this is sort of analogous to 10 days. You know, I don't know. I think it was mostly the educational neglect thing. So, uh, so I think that's their rationale. But I don't know that it makes much sense to me. And then
1: the other question I had was the way that it's written, where it says if the school determines it has not had sufficient contact with a student, right. do we even know what that means? That then I think they, they would they have, have 10 days after that.
2: So how right, many days right.
1: would go by before they would even start doing these other contacts and right, then how many right. days until they actually are allowed to report?
0: That's a really good point. I mean, I just felt like this 10-day thing was kind of like we're in a crisis situation and I, didn't, I don't really see why it has to be in any way analogous to the educational neglect law because I'm pretty sure from conversations with them, they're not trying to find parents to be educational and neglectful. They're not going to substantiate any parents for educational neglect because their kids aren't logging on. We're just worried about safety here. So I don't really get what their reasoning is. Maybe there's some legal issues that I don't understand.
1: It seems like the teachers who have the relationships with these students and have had them with these students all year, that they should rely on those teachers to make the call about whether a particular student that they haven't seen or heard from even after just one day might result in them having a safety concern. I don't think they should have this kind of restriction when the teachers know these children and they know these families.
0: Well, just to be fair to CFSA, they stressed to me, and I think I wrote it in the blog, that if there's a safety concern, they should call right away. There's no restrictions on safety concerns. The issue with them is I think there's a little confusion. To me, the reason we're concerned about the contact, well, we're concerned about the contact for educational reasons, too, but also for safety reasons. So I think it's really hard to make that distinction, and it just sort of confused things, and I'm not sure if that was the best idea.
1: And what would qualify as a safety concern? Do you have to say that you saw the child had a black eye or can you say that you're worried that there's a risk? It's not necessarily an identified safety issue. It's more of the risk knowing that child, knowing that family.
0: Right. I think you're right. And I think they were thinking that was the difference for them. A safety concern would be the kid has a black eye and a contact concern would be, I haven't been in touch with this kid for at least two weeks, so, I don't know what could be happening. And I just feel like it's hard to separate those two right now because if we haven't seen a kid, we just don't know if they have a black eye or not. That was probably what, even though they didn't define it, that I assume is what they meant, that a safety concern would be a specific thing, that they have reason to be concerned because they saw something or heard something. Right.
1: Well, I think your recommendations make a lot of sense, and I also think that CFSA should be think about some of these more nuanced issues, especially as we're getting towards the end of the school year and camps are likely going to be closed and no one's going to have their eyes on these kids. So then what happens?
0: Right. Now they did say that they've been in touch with their regular partners like the collaboratives and MPD to keep an eye on kids and I think that's all great. I think the collaboratives are involved with the families. They're involved with a lot of families that maybe are already part of the system, but I'm worried about those kids who aren't really known to the system and maybe aren't involved with collaboratives or other community agencies. So I really worry about them, you know. So I think even
1: if families are connected to the collaboratives, because of the public health emergency, they're not able to go into people's homes. People aren't able to come into the collaborative and, and talk to people in person. And I think because of this unprecedented situation, CFSA should be relying more on the teachers to allow those teachers to be able to report when they, from their prior experience and relationship with those families, have a concern that they haven't been able to see that child because you don't have all of those other
0: wraparound
1: organizations being able to see what's actually happening.
0: Right. because I, I think Brenda mentioned, like, the people who are delivering food to families. And that, absolutely. I mean, those people in the community or something. So it's kind of hard. It must be chaotic, and it would be hard for people to really observe much in situations like that.
1: Also, because they're social distancing, likely yeah. food deliveries are just going on the front stoop. They're not going into the right. homes, And That's those true. people aren't mandatory reporters either. So right. I don't yeah. think that that will fill that gap.
0: Nothing is going to fill it. We just have to try everything, and you know we're still not going to make up for... This is not going to be a normal situation.
2: Well, that is a lot of food for thought and some great ideas. Thank you so mm-hmm. much, Marie. Yeah, thank, thank you, Marie. You. This has really
1: been illuminating and helpful and we really appreciate your perspective
0: well it was an honor to be chosen as your first guest i'm very honored by that and thank you so much well thanks we hope you have a great rest of your day oh you too you too